Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. This is, you're on the channel, the New Books in Law. I have the great pleasure today of welcoming back Fiona DeLondres. Today she's going to talk about her latest book, The Problems and Practices of Transnational Counterterrorism. It was published by Cambridge Studies and Law and Society by Cambridge University Press in 2022. I'll just give you a tiny introduction to Fiona. Now, she's a professor of global legal studies at Birmingham Law School, and her research concerns constitutionalism, human rights, and transnationalism. But I'll let her tell you more about herself. So, Fiona, um, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write The Problems and Practices of Transnational Counterterrorism? Well, thanks so much for having me on again, Jane. Um, as you said, I'm the Professor of Global Legal Studies at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And in effect, what that kind of encapsulates is thinking about phenomena of governance, law, problem solving, and so on, without being overly restricted by traditional subdisciplinary distinctions between international law and national law or different parts of of international law. Um, And in fact, that's kind of perfect for thinking about this emerging law and practice of counterterrorism in the transnational spheres. So you'll notice, for example, I call it the practice and problems of transnational counterterrorism rather than international counterterrorism, because I seek there to capture the fact that this body of law and practice is generated by, practiced by, actors that are public and private, formal and informal, national, international, regional, and so on. So it is a real melting pot of actors and processes. And in the first instance, that is what I was really drawn to in this field, was this um, mixture of, of entities and actors and different kinds of law and practice and trying to figure out what this melange might mean uh, for how we understand this body of work. Um, And secondly, then, I've been writing about counterterrorism for years, since my PhD. Um, And I've made, uh, I think, quite a conventional journey through counterterrorism, starting with statute law um, around preventive detention, then moving to comparative statute law, then a bit of human rights law, then EU law, and suddenly in a way, suddenly over 15 years, you know, my eyes opened and I realized that these um, distinctions between bodies of law would never allow me to capture or understand the full breadth of what was happening. And so that's what brought me to this book that you know, took a long time, seven years thereabouts, uh, to get it to this point. But that was the journey. That's really interesting because I'm um... As you say, um, you know, it's the title is transnational counterterrorism, not international terrorism. And I found that really interesting um, because, you know, as like law students and sort of junior lawyers, we start with this presumption of like state sovereignty and then within that domestic legal frameworks and human rights and they all are segregated and separate. And I think you really captured this um, and it came through how well researched it was in terms of this sort of like amalgamation and self-generating sort of system of laws that all do actually intersect. Um, so that was super interesting. And so the period of the book, you sort of start off with this post-9-11 transnational counterterrorism order. So 
we all know what happened in 9-11, but can you contextualise this in um, the sort of transnational counterterrorism order since then? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to resist this narrative that suggests that everything changed on 9-11. Uh, of course, terrorism existed before 9-11 and international bodies like the United Nations, which I spend a lot of time on in this book, were to some extent engaged with terrorism and counterterrorism. But up until that point, it was primarily on two pretty discrete tracks. So one was to react to specific kinds of terrorist activity or situations or attacks that were deemed terrorist. So, for example, hijacking of airplanes or financing of terrorism, um, on which there might be particular um, treaties or resolutions. And the second then was to make treaties in the conventional, as you say, state sovereignty, states consent, we all make this treaty and agree to it or not, uh, approach to international law. So what happened with 9-11 was that immediately after the attacks, and I mean immediately after the attacks, the Security Council passed this resolution that recognized uh, international terrorism as a threat to international peace and security, which may seem a truism, but is actually legally and politically super significant because the role of the UN Security Council, dominated by the five permanent members, including the United States, is to preserve and react to threats to international peace and security. So by characterizing counterterrorism in that way, the Security Council positions itself as a primary actor. And from there, we get a series of Security Council resolutions passed under, and this is what's significant about them, is that they're both passed under Chapter 7 of the Charter, and that means they're binding on all states rather than declaratory or encouraging. And secondly, uh, they are what people have now begun to call legislative Security Council resolutions. It's This was really unprecedented. So the Security Council in a resolution would oblige all states to do something with their national law. In the first big one, 1373, they obliged all states to criminalise uh, the financing of terrorism pretty broadly understood, but with terrorism never being defined. So whatever a national state called it. And so just those two examples, I think, point to the reason why I think the 9-11 moment is this really foundational moment in what we can now call a transnational counterterrorism order, because it uh, it situates counterterrorism or terrorism in this way as a threat to international peace and, or, uh, and security. And it then um, creates this moment when the Security Council takes on this global legislative role which was not an aberration. It has not let it go uh, in the context of counterterrorism in the 20 years since. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. It's sort of this um, these very, it seems, broad um, binding powers in these new resolutions that do bind states and yet apply to this somewhat potentially slippery definition 
um, and changing definition of counterterrorism across different states. I mean, I think you talk about this later in the book about how it is ever expansive. Um, but then what's, I guess my next question is, what's the difference between this sort of uh, counterterrorism mechanisms and these resolutions and a sort of institution of global governance? Yeah, so I think that one of the main realizations that I've had in the process of thinking through this uh, milieu is that counterterrorism has become a mode of global governance. Um, it's become a frame through which global governance happens. And I think I mean that in two ways. So the first way I mean it is that it's a set or it encapsulates a set of concerns that is very greedy, like it has a gravitational pull and it brings lots of things into it. Uh, so now you see climate change, food shortage, which is called food security, uh, and so on, all being pulled in, in one way or another, to this frame of counterterrorism, largely being understood as things that have to be resolved in order to address root causes of terrorism. So you get this kind of framing pull, and that means that lots, well, many things, if not most things, can be securitized, uh, which is very problematic. And the the second way in which I mean counterterrorism is a mode of global governance is that if we look at how counterterrorism is actually pursued, it is pursued through a global governance model, by which I mean a mixture of formal law and soft law, formal institutions and informal institutions, co-working between international organizations, states, civil society, corporations, private money, banks, institutions. So that kind of, to use the word again, gobbly or greedy um, characteristic of global governance where it pulls everything in, but without having kind of neat lines of <clears throat> accountability or responsibility or of, hier or of hierarchy are characteristic of uh, what we now see in transnational counterterrorism. So I think they're part of, you know, it, it is part of global governance and global governance as a general endeavour is pulled in to this framework of countering terrorism. And now I guess I'm also interested, was there any sort of, has there been any sort of resistance put up by states or non-state actors to this sort of, as you say, greedy sort of gravitational pull about on the of the expansion of these counterterrorism and securitization of laws and processes and practices? So there has been some. Um, I would say from states, not an enormous amount um, and not necessarily from the kinds of states that uh, one might stereotypically expect to be proponents of trying to, you know, keep international law in the realm of international law and maintain niche distinctions between different bodies of law and so on. So some states uh, are very enthusiastic about counterterrorism, even though, or at least they're very involved in funding and seeking to understand and promote transnational counterterrorism even though they are maybe not conventionally thought of as being very security-oriented states or as states that would profit from or benefit from a kind of um, normative and institutional messiness uh, that we see in this in this field. Um, 
whereas some other states, uh, I'll give the example of, of Mexico, for example, as a state that has conventionally been very cautious about transnational counterterrorism and really tried to center human rights in those narratives in ways that other states maybe have not exactly done. Interestingly, as time has gone on, and as some traditionally hegemonic states, so I guess the United States or the United Kingdom or France, have started to lose their capacity to fully direct, if not control, this body of activity, there has been a little bit more discussion of what is now being called right-sizing counterterrorism, which I guess kind of either means downsizing or shifting it into other institutional spaces that they can more um, fully direct. Uh, so at the moment, for example, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we see a huge amount of expressed concern by Western states, so-called Western states, that we need to take to begin to take counterterrorism out of this field because it's not being uh, it's it's being kind of misused or instrumentalized by Russia um, or it's being misapplied or they're blocking our attempts to make it better, you know, to kind of reinsert human rights or whatever into this field. There's there's just so much to unpack in that. Um, but I think that's a very interesting dynamic that we now are beginning to hear a little bit more interesting um, chatter that might at first blush begin to appear as resistance, but is, I think, something different uh, or something more subtle than that. It's not really a resistance to transnational counterterrorism. It's an attempt to retake the reins, um, given that institutions have become, in some cases, kind of captured by states that are now beginning to be seen as rogue states or states that are not fully within, let's say, the community of like-minded states. Of course, there's been long-standing resistance from civil society. Um, and this resistance has multiple different dimensions to it. But I guess in one way, a really significant dimension and one that I spend a considerable amount of time looking at in the book is to try to reinforce the ways in which national governments are misusing the impulses, instructions, toolkits, and discourses from international and transnational law and politics to repress resistance at home. Um, there are high-profile examples of this, for example, in China, um, or other states that you might think of off the top of your head. But actually, there are also multiple disruptions of, let's say, humanitarian action um, through the counter-financing counter measures um, that happen in emergencies all over the world um, and which were predicted. You know, civil society would have said at the time, this is going to prevent us from being able to do humanitarian work and those uh, because civil society are not folded into the process their voices weren't really properly taken into account and then states states act like it's a surprise when this body of law is misused or has perverse 
uh, consequences, uh, whereas in fact, it was entirely predictable. Yeah. And so I want to just come back and step back for a moment. Um, because this seems like a huge, um, as you call it in the book, um, a problem. But then in a practical sense, I want to understand how this works. So, for example, you mentioned earlier Resolution 1373. Can you tell me a little bit a bit more about this and how these sort of mechanisms actually work in practice? Yeah, so... 1373 is, let's say, a really foundational instrument, foundational resolution in this order, not only because, as I said earlier, it was the Security Council's first foray into international legislating, which it has continued to do, but also because it set up an an important institution, the Counterterrorism Committee. And then a little bit later, um, a supporting executive institution or special institution um, was mandated to support the Counterterrorism Committee, and that's the Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, or the CTED. Transnational counterterrorism is just an alphabet soup of acronyms, but CTED is um, is a good one to remember. And so in this practical sense, the Security Council passes 1373, which requires, let's say, as a top line, there's other stuff in it, but as a top line, requires states to criminalise um, certain kinds of financial support um, and to take steps to prevent it and also to cooperate in terms of uh, countering terrorist financing. So you have the obligation. Then you get a set of um, kind of recommendations by an informal body called the Financial Action Task Force. <clears throat> That's not part of the UN, but it has existed for quite a long time in anti-money laundering. So the Financial Action Task Force sets up or develops these recommendations. And the recommendations are to support states in implementing 1373. And then C, the states have to report to the Counterterrorism Committee on how they're implementing 1373. So there's a reporting mechanism. And after a few years, as I said, the CTED is established to support is the word that's always used, or build capacity in states to implement this resolution, which involves, among other things, doing country visits, talking to states about what they've done with their national law and processes, making recommendations in reports that are not public. These are private between CTED and the state, unless the state elects to have them published. And I think to be fair to CTED, which I'm very critical of in lots of ways, they do encourage states to make these reports public, but there's only a handful of them available. And it's only the recommendations, I think, not the full report. And so this kind of cycle of generating norms at Security Council level, then generating soft law, so it's informal law recommendations, either through a supporting body or through some other specialist institution that is not a formal international organization takes place that would help states to understand what that top line obligation means. And then you have this institution infrastructure, which supports stroke enforces the obligation through reporting and close cooperation uh, with, with states. So in fact, you know, 1373 generated this kind of mini system uh, with very long arms um, that is 
a good microcosm of the way that we see lots of uh, the transnational counterterrorism law and practice actually operating. And now sort of bringing that point that you've just made together about CTED and something that you mentioned earlier about um, states um, and sort of non-civil actors resisting and it's sometimes surprising where this resistance comes from. I want to ask you about something that you wrote in the book. So I quote, you say that, not surprising, CTED visits remain extremely controversial. There is ongoing tension about the extent to which the CTED does or should engage with non-state actors, including civil society on those visits. Russia in particular has argued that this mandate ought to be restricted and the Security Council itself has effectively fudged this issue by noting relationships with non-state actors but characterising them as a complement to primary engagement with member state actors. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about what you mean by this and how sort of counterterrorism, transnational counterterrorism mechanisms operate in this way and are enforced. Yes, yeah, so the CTED country visits are in lots of ways at the heart of what CTED does um, as an enforcement stroke supporting um, body. Um, and as I've already said, the reports that are produced are not public. They remain private between CTED and the committee and the state. Uh, but these visits, it's very difficult to get a full handle on the visits because, of course, I'm not an insider. Um, but from what I can understand, the visits often include um, people from multiple agencies or multiple bodies, depending on what is appropriate to that state. So what might the state be struggling with or um, need a bit more support with uh, as the discourse would go? And they go and they have a series of meetings, but mostly with governments, government departments and ministries and other entities that are sort of nominated or endorsed by the state, for example, banks. A big one because of counterterrorism financing. But as concern has continued to grow about the ways in which national governments are using transnational counterterrorism to repress civil society and to close civil society space, largely but not always by cutting off their funding or by um, deeming resistance extremism and using counter-extremism measures against people, there has been a growing demand for CTED to meet with civil society in a way that is safe for civil society. So obviously offering them protection from reprisals, ensuring the state doesn't get to determine or who gets to come and all the rest of it, um, so that they can actually get a more pluralistic picture of what the effect of counterterrorism is on the ground. And the CTED has a limited mandate. The mandate has to be renewed every couple of years and um, because it's a special project. It's not it's not strictly a permanent institution, even though it feels very permanent. And every time the mandate comes up for renewal, there is this tug of war about the wording of the mandate, you know, should it require CTED to meet civil society when it's visiting the states? Um, there are other things as well. How prominent should human rights be in CTED's invest uh, visits and reports and so on? And this is just something that it seems that the 
members of the Security Council cannot find resolution on. And it is true that Russia is one of the, as a permanent member state with a veto, et cetera, et cetera, Russia is, of course, in a very powerful position here. And it is strongly opposed to um, any required meetings with civil society. Um, Listeners will know that civil society is very sharply repressed in the Russian Federation through funding and um, political um, repression. Um, And that is clearly part of the concern here is the national concern. Uh, And Russia is also of the view, frankly, and it says this very frankly, that there is now too much human rights in counterterrorism work, uh, which given the fact that there's very little human rights will tell you something. Um, And they uh, believe that CTED should be seen as an operational body. And this is about counterterrorism and not about meeting civil society or about ensuring compliance with human rights um, in any kind of meaningful way. And so effectively because of that resistance, the language of the mandate, you know, encourages such meetings and so on, but it doesn't really require them. And it, it leaves the door open for states to, to try to disrupt uh, a meeting with civil society. See, I understand CETA does try actually to meet with civil society and to get non-state perspectives, but uh, as you can imagine, in the states where they really need those perspectives, it's the most difficult to get them um, for all the reasons that we've already mentioned. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, that makes perfect sense. So perhaps this is a good time to talk more about human rights protection and what happens to it amongst all of this. Is counterterrorism rhetoric sort of deployed as a way to protect human rights from the threat of terrorism or human rights protections obfuscated by the transnational counterterrorism laws? It's a mixture. Um, The first thing to say is that the early resolutions like 1373 didn't really mention human rights at all. Over time, we have had human rights language inserted in resolutions and in soft law but it's often very generic. And the UN Special Rapporteur on protecting human rights while countering terrorism has noted this, that we get paragraph after paragraph of very detailed obligation uh, in criminal law or cooperation or coordination or whatever. And then just a line, you know, states must ensure that they comply with their all international obligations, including international human rights law, refugee law and humanitarian law. So, I have to acknowledge the textual inclusion of human rights, but with that proviso that it's very generic, very general, um, and it remains quite generic throughout the entire process because CTED is not a human rights specialist body. So when CTED is working on supporting documents, it does sometimes work with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights to try to articulate more specifically what the human rights implications are, but actually that's not its focus. So human rights remains as this kind of post-it that's slapped on everything. Don't forget human rights, but we don't. States don't really get clear direction on that. So I think that's that's an issue. Um, but it's also there's also this very interesting thing happening now, and I, I talk about it in chapter three of the book, where there is a what seems to be very effective 
process underway of re-articulating countering terrorism as a mode of protecting human rights. So this is significant because, of course, security, like basic human security, is a precondition for full human flourishing and the enjoyment of human rights. But that's not the way that this discourse is really moving. Instead, what's happening is this push to try to put the focus on the ways in which terrorism creates human rights deprivation and thus to present counterterrorism as prima facie human rights reinforcing or human rights protecting, even though we know that in the course of countering terrorism, either bona fide or not, states take measures that are at the very least deeply in tension with human rights protections and often manifestly violate human rights protections, both on the individual level for suspected terrorists or people who are deemed extremists, but also on the systemic level, as, for example, our idea of what constitutes a fair trial gets recalibrated by what happens in terrorist trials, or we have mass digital surveillance of financial transactions or other kinds of activities in order to have sufficient, purportedly to have a sufficient base of data to be able to um, to undertake security activity. And so this growing narrative tries to obscure and tries to, to almost marginalize what has always been a core central recognized tension here, which is how do we actually draw lines or ensure proportionality? How do we recognize that there are some things that we can't do in countering terrorism because they are too, they are disproportionately um, intrusive in terms of rights protection? So this discourse seeks to um, to obfuscate that. That's really interesting. And just jumping ahead a little bit to a later part in the book, I think one example that um, you sort of flesh out is that of China. Um, and you write in the book that China within the UN is a strong proponent of countering terrorism, but it's also arguable that at least within China, the rhetoric of counterterrorism has been deployed to erode rights and freedoms of people in, for example, Xinjiang and Hong Kong. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about this case of China and the way that it's embraced so-called counterterrorism measures and the impact that this has had on human rights. China has is a very interesting example in transnational counterterrorism because it's doing things, very interesting things on two different tracks. The first thing is that together with Russia, it's the primary partner in an enormous regional organization that is not very well known outside of China and Russia called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or the SCO. Um, and within the SCO, which is very much security oriented body, there is a high focus on extremism, which is defined within the SCO uh, as effectively anything that challenges state ideology or the legitimacy of the state. Um, and that has comes from a particular ideological perspective, of course, that is shared by the members of the SCO or purportedly shared by them. So the first thing that China is doing through its engagement with the SCO and its um, generation uh, with its partners there 
of this approach to extremism is it's seeking to uh, export a particular perspective on what constitutes extremism, which is something that transnational counterterrorism tells states they should be countering and preventing, which aligns with China's domestic perspective uh, on things like color revolutions and so on. So it's very um, ideologically coherent from a Chinese perspective, but it's legitimated through its transnational kind of, it's traveled through transnational legal spaces, let's say from the SCO onwards. And, you, you know, as, as part of the implication of that is that it becomes something that the Chinese officials use in their speeches and interventions when they seek to legitimate and justify actions like the national security law in Hong Kong or uh, their actions in Xinjiang. And so they talk actually about how this is, um, for example, uh, in a letter to The Economist, uh, a Chinese official argued that their actions in Xinjiang are consistent with principles embodied in international documents on, on counterterrorism, such as the UN Global Counterterrorism Strategy. And that is because they're hitching into this notion of extremism. And they also argue <clears throat> that in fact, their actions in Xinjiang are uh, being undertaken in order to protect and promote the human rights of residents there. Um, so to protect them from their vulnerability to extremism. So it's, I mean, in a way, it's unfair to pick up a single state like China, because lots of states are doing things like this. But the Chinese example is very well known, because people are very concerned. Uh, and it's also very well known because it's something that other UN entities, including the human rights entities, are deeply concerned about. So it demonstrates how counterterrorism and this really expansive way that it is being pursued and the fact that its core ideas of terrorism and extremism are never defined in an international binding instrument, it shows how all of those factors actually create lots of legitimating space for states that seek to act in repressive rights violating ways, but can present those actions uh, as being not only consistent with their international obligations, but in fact, actually good for the human rights of the people uh, who are being subjected to these measures. So then would you say that counterterrorism is able to, or does it counter violent extremism or is it, you know, just deployed more in sort of rhetoric? I mean, the question of whether violent extremism or extremism that may become violent or that is conducive to engagement in violence or terrorism is effectively countered is an extremely difficult question to answer for at least two reasons. The first reason is that the science underpinning all this countering and preventing violent extremism work is extremely shaky. So much of this work is premised on a kind of vision of an escalation from some kind of vulnerability to being exposed to radical ideas, to beginning to believe them, to becoming violent, to being a terrorist. And so there's this 
kind of sense that there's an escalator from one to the other. And as long as you can intervene on that escalator, you can prevent the person um, from engaging in terrorist activity. And the truth is that the evidence base for that is, uh, is at, at the very least contested um, and in many ways highly questionable. So we don't really exactly know whether even in theory these interventions can work. But it's also a difficult question to answer because we don't have any clear sense of what it would actually mean for them to work. <laughs> you know, what is effectiveness yeah. in this field? It is clear that no part of the international legal or political apparatus actually subscribes to the idea that there is an end in sight. So we used to, in the old days, like when I was in law school and you were taught about terrorism, which I was because I grew up in Ireland, so of course we had laws around terrorism, um, we were always taught that the whole idea was to try to restore normalcy so that you would you were using the law and police and military and so on in an attempt to bring something to an end and to go back. Now, that was always a myth, but let's say that was the kind of prevailing mythology of the exception, of the emergency. Nobody's talking about going back here. There is no foreseen end point, uh, which is probably realistic, right, to say we will not have a point where there is no terrorism or no violence or no radicalization or no extremism. But what it means is we don't actually really know how we would identify whether this is making the world safer, uh, what the kind of really long-term impacts of this are. So what are we doing to trust between the demos and the state? What are we doing to trust between people? Um, what are we doing to um, how budgets are expended and what we're actually spending money on to create societies of enhanced equality and material well-being, which might uh, mean that there is less conducing, less conducing to uh, engaging in or being attracted by outsider ideas. For example, we don't, we're not measuring this and states do not think in the long term. No politicians, no politics really thinks in the long term, but states don't think in the long term. So I don't mean to give a kind of fudgy answer to your question. The answer in a way is we don't know and actually fundamentally epistemologically, we don't really know how we would know yeah. if any of this works. Yeah, I mean, that does make sense. And it's sort of, it really, I think, demonstrates the sort of creeping and expansive nature of the transnational counterterrorism movement, um, especially, as you say, with it there being sort of no endpoint, not just in terms of sort of, um, transnational organizations and like legal instruments, but also in terms of domestic laws. And you've talked about soft laws um, and sort of informal mechanisms. So perhaps we can talk more about that um, now. So for example, you have mentioned these sort of informal mechanisms. And in another part of the book, you talk about how counterterrorism laws are actually incorporated even into the internet. Um, and these sort of, uh, through these mechanisms, through non-state actors, so perhaps, yeah, can you tell me a bit more about this and how these sort of are part of the counterterrorism network? Yeah, so 
the internet is a matter of deep concern uh, to states, many of whom are concerned about it for a variety of reasons. And certainly one of those is around terrorism and vulnerability to being recruited online as well as organizational capacity online. So you have this situation where international organizations and states are really concerned with this thing called the internet, but the internet, they don't own the internet. Mm. You know, they are generally speaking, they don't own the internet and they generally don't control the internet. Um, And the internet, as everybody knows, is a jurisdictionally complicated place. Let's put it in as simple a term as we can, like that. So there's an appreciation that in order to do anything internet, in terms of regulation on the internet, probably, you know, we need some kind of interaction with the big providers. So states and international organizations have an incentive to cooperate with large providers because in essence, they are the primary entity that we engage with when we go online. At the same time, the internet providers and the big companies also have an incentive. And that incentive is to try to prove that they can Mm self-regulate, right? Um, So they want to establish their regulatory capacity in order to try to keep states and international organizations a little bit more distant. Now, in some places, like in the European Union, actually, the EU has a huge amount of internet law and is pretty highly regulatory, even though it does work in cooperation with ISPs, or with internet service providers. But the internet, or sorry, the uh, technology companies have not managed to say, we'll take care of this. You know, so, so there is a kind of a mixture. But in some other places, it's primarily actually the self-generated community codes and standards of providers. And what's interesting is that you increasingly see those providers incorporating counter-terrorist and counter-extremism concerns into their community standards and codes in terms of reference. And so this manifests in lots of ways, material that they take down, material that they block, users that they shut down and block it's you know it's a little bit like whack-a-mole as well it's very um resource intensive for the isps i'm sure it's like they shut down 10 10 uh, accounts and 20 new accounts all start but so you see these this sort of incorporation of these logics and requirements in community standards um sometimes they go beyond what even in a regulated space like the European Union, sometimes they go beyond what the law might actually strictly require uh, for the purposes purportedly of efficiency. So to try and just get things done more quickly. Um, They're increasingly um, being implemented, not necessarily by humans, but algorithmically. So like machine learning, tracing hashtags and looking out for specific words that are considered to indicate a certain kind of activity and so on. It's a huge industry ongoing with this. But, you know, this is a very, a very interesting part of the counterterrorism order that I think I, I really want to look at more in the future is precisely both in terms of the text how are these standards reflecting international laws or national laws, but also in terms of the practice, how is it actually being implemented? Is there a process 
you know, Facebook, you, you can have something that looks not entirely dissimilar to like a civil legal proceeding in a Facebook body to try and get your account reinstated. Uh, you know, so this is our really interesting, um, but also prove just how pervasive this is. And that is one thing I really wanted to show in this book was, you know, this transnational counterterrorism order that might feel remote, like it happens in this room in New York and Security Council, and we don't really have to worry about it. Actually, you and I are on Zoom right now, and it's happening to us right now, you know, uh, because it's pervasive, it's everywhere in every interaction that we have with technology, for example. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I, I do think that does come across in the book, but um, I will look forward to more research if you um, do pursue that. It sounds really interesting and really important. Um, so then I guess my next question that sort of leads on from that, does the transnational counterterrorism sort of order an institution of it undermine either other international laws or perhaps constitutionalism and domestic laws? I think it certainly troubles them. Uh, So the first thing to say, really, is that I am pretty firmly of the view that counterterrorism should now be understood as one of the parts of international, like public international law. So we've tended to think about that as being, you know, private international, well, let's say immunities, law of the sea, international humanitarian law, international human rights law, the law of nations, you know, really traditional divisions. But we have now this new, very big pillar of laws that don't really fit anywhere in the existing understandings of international law. So I think, first of all, we have to recognize it as a subdiscipline of international law. But then, and importantly, we have to ask, what does that do to the other parts of international law? I think there's a particular concern about international humanitarian law because a lot of, not all, but a lot of the, let's say, physical manifestations of terrorism and counterterrorism that we are concerned with nowadays are actually happening in situations of armed conflict or situations that could be understood as armed conflicts, either uh, non-international or international. And in many of those situations, international humanitarian law has something pretty significant to say about what should happen. You know, like if someone is arrested, what should their status be? What kind of trials are they entitled to? What kind of treatment are they entitled to? What kind of repatriation, etc., are they entitled to? But when a state or a UN peacekeeping force or CTED or somebody else determines that what we're looking at here is counterterrorism, then some of those international humanitarian laws can be displaced by counterterrorism laws, which are generally less protective of the status of the individual and less burdensome for the state. And so you have what the Special Rapporteur has described or expressed concern about here, this kind of norm dilution uh, within international law, which I think is really significant. And that is part of the concern about the rule of law and constitutionalism. Because really, if we open our eyes, what we see here is that powerful states over the last 20 years have developed a whole new body and set of institutions 
uh, in international law and international practice in order to allow them to do the things they wanted to do with less legal restriction than they would have had if they had used the existing bodies of law. And that's manifestly a rule of law concern. Within counterterrorism, of course, there are also rule of law concerns, you know, everything from how we collect so-called battlefield evidence and what we can do with it to all of these thousands of people abandoned by their states in Al-Haq and other really dangerous camps and situations, to people being tried and subject to the death penalty in um, national jurisdictions because their states won't repatriate them. So you have micro rule of law concerns as well, but actually a really big one is this whole idea that you don't like the law, you just change it. And that's effectively what you're looking at here. I mean, that is something that should intuitively be of enormous concern to everybody. Yeah, I mean, I'm based in Hong Kong at the moment, and I would say, you know, I've seen that certainly firsthand. Um, So I guess my question is, are there any sort of accountability mechanisms, especially when you're talking about, you know, the rule of law being sort of chipped away at and this sort of thing? So, I mean, there are some mechanisms of of oversight, uh, but they are mostly for states. In other words, mostly they are you know, entities that seek to assess and try to change how states are implementing international or transnational counterterrorism law. So the accountable entity is the state. Now, you know, obviously the uh, purchase that those entities will get, and I mean they're everything from national courts to international human rights courts to the special rapporteur. The purchase that they will get within the domestic system is very much dependent on the openness and mindset of the domestic actors, you know, their willingness to be accountable to change things and so on. But if we're at a state level, to some extent, you can use your ordinary mechanisms of accountability. What concerns me more is that there's no real accountability for what the international level is doing. So like the Security Council is not account- not really accountable to anyone. You might say it's accountable to its members, but its members are dominated by the Permanent Five. Yes, yeah, so the elected 10 members yeah. you know, are often very active in this field and do try to resist or push back, but ultimately, the P5 called the shots here. Um, so they're as accountable as they want to be, let's say, which isn't a very robust form of accountability. Um, these informal institutions are not accountable to anyone. They have to report to their membership, but they're not accountable in the sense of the people who actually are, are you know, personally impacted by their decisions have no route to make them accountable. And so that's the core accountability concern that I have here is that if we just follow the basic proposition that accountability should follow power, which is an uncontroversial proposition. And if we understand the sources of power as being transnational, then we see that there are massive accountability gaps. Those accountability gaps are not unique to counterterrorism. In fact, in the chapter in the book where I talk about 
accountability, I'm relying largely on existing literature on accountability and global governance. So we've been concerned about accountability for a long time. We just see those concerns manifesting here. There are some things that have been done or established to try to give people ways of challenging decisions around sanctions in individuals who are sanctioned. So there is an ombudsperson um, who can, to whom you can go if you seek to be delisted or taken off the sanctions list. And there's a long process and it's very difficult, but it is better than it was. However, better is not good. So the fact that what we have now is better than nothing does not mean it's sufficient. Um, And I think they're one of the things that I have become very kind of clear on in writing this book and having started as someone who's very process oriented and thought as long as you have a good procedure, you can probably sort most things out is that actually there's a real danger that something like the ombudsperson is legitimating a system that in fact cannot be saved from its own illegitimacy because of the lack of accountability. And I mean, that's, I think, a really uh, interesting key takeaway, one of the key takeaways from the book. I mean, it, it's extremely alarming what you're talking about, you know, all of these sort of rights being abrogated with very limited accountability um, mechanisms. Um, yeah, it's extremely concerning. Um, so, Fiona, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, our traditional last question, what are you working on now? <laughs> Well, um, I'm very happy to be finished this book, uh, which has been going on, as I said, for for a long time. Um, And having taken a short rest, just a couple of months from new projects, I am now in the exploratory phase of a a project where I want to think about non-progressive uses of rights uh, and rights talk. So um, I've been on speaking to you twice now about security-related books, but I also have another line of work which is on reproductive rights and a further line of work which is on domestic reception of international human rights law. And one of the things I'm interested in that I see actually across all of these three bodies of work is that many people who resist rights protection or the evolution of rights do so using what they would call rights-based arguments. (laughs) So, you know, people saying that uh, counterterrorism is a mode of rights protection or people saying that um, uh, anything from, uh, you know, that gay marriage, uh, resisting gay marriage is for the purpose of protecting children's rights or uh, that resisting abortion is for the purpose of protecting women from manipulation, so to protect their health and so on, progressive um, deployment of rights talk. And I'm particularly interested in trying to figure out where it comes from and how it transnationalizes and how people engage with each other. So there is work on this in women's studies and political science and so on, but I, I want to see if I can figure out a way to bring these strands together. So actually the day after tomorrow, I'm off to Harvard for a month to go to the archives uh, in the Radcliffe Institute of the pro-life, some of the pro-life movement archives in the United States to see if I can try and begin to understand what the roots of these discourses strategically might be. Um, 
So I don't know where it's going to take me, if anywhere. But right now, that's what I'm thinking about. It sounds like very pertinent um, and really exciting, interesting work. So I can't wait to see what comes out of that. Um, me neither. <laughs> cool. Hopefully we can have you back again. I would love that. Um, so just to sort of wrap it all up, I'm Jane Richards and I've been speaking with Professor Fiona DeLondres about her latest book, The Problems and Practices of Transnational Counterterrorism, which was published by Cambridge Studies and Law and Society, Cambridge University Press in 2022. This is the New Books Network and you're listening to New Books in Law. Fiona, thank you for your time.